Greetings, fellow travellers, and welcome to The Way of the Showman, where we view the world through the lens of showmanship. I am your gracious host, Captain Frodo, and what a true pleasure it is to have you back here, giving me your time and attention. And uh, when I say back here, uh, I am now recording from a makeshift uh, recording studio, uh, underneath some pillows from my couch, wrapped in um, one of the dunas from a hotel bed. I am in Aalborg in Denmark, performing as part of a new show project called Majestic. And uh, what a glorious uh, experience that is. It really has been so emotional from my father dropping me at the airport in Norway, putting on masks and washing my hands and carrying on on that uh, journey. Um, empty airports, practically empty airports, and and everyone in masks. And it it's um, it's uh, it's such a strange uh, way to see the world was something that I know so well. I have done this so much. As a few years ago, I did 10 intercontinental travels in one year uh, whilst I was living in Australia, going to everywhere, New Zealand and Africa and Europe. And it's, uh, and, uh, and this is so different. This is a different world. And when I'm back in Norway, it feels strangely normal. Um, I guess I'm a bit of an introvert, so I don't mind spending all this time writing, going for walks, thinking and reading, and just being with my family. But then when I go out, I like you go, whoa, it really, there's so much of this that's uh, really broken. Yet, then when I arrive here, there's a beautiful spiel tent, Paradiso, standing in the spot next to this uh, momentous, brutalist kind of uh, building which is the theater scorn where we are norkraft where which is what the theater is called next who's organizing this and in that tent with us inside it in that bubble like so many times i've traveled through the world and in one time we go inside the tent and then when we step outside it's uh, George Square uh, in Edinburgh and you look into the trees and then the next uh, few months later you're at the uh, oh, lookout and you're in Hyde Park in Sydney and then the next time you go outside of that very same tent that we toured with in the beginning with La Clique and that then we're in uh, on a pontoon in a pond in the financial district of uh, Dublin and that's what sort of happened here now there's the Paradiso is this little circus uh, paradise that's outside of time and space like circus often is. And as I stepped in there and saw these people, some of them who I've worked with and some of them who I love very much and and a lot of new friends as well. And then to, to meet this and to collaborate on putting on the show, even though we are on the you know, with everyone sitting and with having meetings and sitting on different chairs with gaps in between and all this and washing our hands and whatever, putting, what is it called? Some hand sanitizer on us. It's, it's anyway, 
So we're sitting there and we're doing the rehearsal on the very first day. It's like I, I arrived a bit late. Flights kept being moved because of the pandemic. And then I, and we're sitting at uh, sitting on a stage with fellow show folk and artists and creatives. And uh, Betty Seamus, who's organizing this, he just makes sort of, it's kind of just in passing, but, and uh, and this goes, and then you, you sit on this chair here to someone, and, and then we will hit you just with a, hit you with a nice backlight, and we have the haze coming up, and we see your silhouette, and when you start singing, just sit totally still. And in this description of what we are about to do, even though it's daytime and there's nothing pretty about anything, or whatever it as he evokes it and the lights go down in my mind and the I see the haze and I see these things I just it just completely wells up in me so a minute <laughs> it just happens again right now it's, that's a bit un, unexpected uncalled, <laughs> uncalled for but anyway it's uh, a very emotional time and Although the world is still broken, and this is not by any stretch, we're not through it, and this is not uh, this is not even like you'd think of it as the as the right thing to do for in almost everywhere in the world. It does feel like it's this seed of hope for us that the world will go back, and also a reminder as to how incredibly important it is for us human beings to gather. And even if it does mean that we have to sit that, it's because it's weird to perform to a room that is like a third full that when it's sold out at capacity and people are sitting in these odd groups because three or four people came to the show, they sit in this group with empty chairs behind them and next to them and all this, basically like we talked about in that Marx Brothers uh, story a few episodes ago. but. It's there's something hopeful about it too, and weirdly rebellious and and defiant. Where you're going, we, yes, we're afraid. We're wondering, is this the right thing to do to put on a show? The people, every single person who's bought a ticket to come, go, is this the right thing to do? Can we do this safely? And then you come in there, and that cathartic experience in that room, it's um, yeah, it's uh, it's a very very emotional and very good. So that's um that's what's been going on here uh in the for me. So uh things will look up. I know there are places like Melbourne that are still deep in lockdown and you can't go out and we had that in Vegas and I guess they're still going again in Vegas now. I don't know. It's um it's very strange times. I find that that is one of the things that I say and think the most. But it is also a creative time. I have been enjoying writing and uh, pondering on the thoughts that I'm going to talk about this week about trying to find a practical way to get into the carnival because sort of I'm the book that I'm writing on called The Way of the Showman, which is like my philosophy and stringing together all these thoughts into understanding what showmanship and all this actually is and 
and that is that's kind of the theoretical and philosophical underpinnings of what, of what we're talking about. But there's a whole other project that has come out now in some interactions that I've had with some listeners of the podcast and also fellow uh, performers here that I've uh, talked to, that there is a very practical aspect, or there needs to be a practical aspect to all the stuff that we're talking about here. And uh, although I'm so uh, taken up by having to get my head around uh, just making the kind of underlying structure or whatever of this and putting it down into one cohesive long story into a book uh, I haven't been able to focus on the practical stuff but this what we're talking about today is one sort of what I feel like it's a little bit more of a practical way uh, even if it could just be seen as a creative stimulation or whatever I've also had this uh, last week I've had some of the most uh, deep and uh, meaningful uh, feedback from you out there both people have sent me audio and people have uh, have sent me long emails and I thank you all for that it is so great to get feedback from the show um it's excellent that you guys have left the pod um podcasts that you've left um reviews and everything on the podcast thing that is just so helpful and it is so encouraging for me who is yeah sometimes you know you're you're wondering whether you're just uh, shouting in the dark but there are people out there there are little candles of enthusiasm burning throughout the world inside all of us and uh, i thank all of you beautiful listeners for uh, checking it out and uh, with that I I've probably had enough of a emotional rant I didn't think that was going to get that emotional but anyway it's uh, time to enter into the world of ideas and see if we can uh, sort of wrestle it back into some practical stuff <laughs> here we go <laughs> All right, let's get into it. I'd like to talk uh, first about participatory experiences, something I've been thinking a lot about, both about participating fully in what I am doing and what we are doing, but also how can we then, with this whole mythopoetic carnival project, how can we actually participate in it or get into it? That's what today's thoughts are about. Uh, in what we've talked about so far, one aspect that I think is very important in the placement of the carnival as a mythopoetic foundation is its deeply participatory nature. The carnival is not just a show. It's uh, not just something you sit and watch. The circus is a performance, and from a certain point of view, that's all it is. You pay a ticket and you get your seat, you sit and you watch. The nature of the acts and the feats and tricks performed are of a particularly visceral nature, of course, as we've discussed, but still watching and being engaged in the watching process and in what you see is the full extent of your participation. Along the midway of a carnival, the way is made by you with your steps. You walk along, you take in the sights, 
you're attracted to this, that, and the other. It's a choose-your-own-adventure of interactive showmanship. You choose to stop and gawk at what grabs your attention. If it sustains your interest, you step closer. And if the promises made on the outside by the carnival talker tickles your fancy, you can pay the price and step inside for the full and deeper participation. There is chaos, there are crowds, there is music, there are choices to be made. One thing leads to the next and you carve out your way, your own way. In the midst of the pandemonium, you haven't got the time or wherewithal to consciously consider and watch your every step. Only in the afterglow of the experience can you look back at your way through it all. And in reflection, you can see what you learn, what you learned about life and about yourself. Someone said, step out into the world to learn about yourself. Then step into yourself to learn about the world. I heard this a long time ago and I've forgotten who it was that said it, but I find this interesting that you go out, you see, and it's through participating in the world that you learn to understand by what you meet you that faces and is reflected, that you face that is reflected in yourself. That's how you discover your identity. In the circus, we all take on different roles, and you might try different, uh, different um, characters and everything. But then, maybe at the point that I am at now in my life, when I'm a little older, I can step into myself and um, recognize and find the world in there. Anyway, it's an interesting concept. And in our case, the carnival is a microcosmic reflection of the macrocosmos of the world. So following this maxim, there should be a period of reflecting after visiting the carnival, real world and mythopoetic alike. There's a lot of learn, and there's a lot of learning to be done, and there is a lot to learn if you choose to take the experience as something to learn from, which I think uh, we are absolutely advocating here by all this talk and thinking. A real-world carnival isn't about just theoretical knowing. It's not the kind of knowledge you get from books. It's about participatory knowing. It's about getting real-world skills through real lessons. The ability to know that someone might not have your best interest in mind. That they might uh, shortchange you when handing back the change on your entrance tickets. It's not about getting secret metaphysical knowledge. It's about getting wise practices, which later can be applied to life beyond the carnival's edge, on the outside of its perimeter fence. It's a training ground, a particular arena for you to explore yourself as an agent in the world. The walk down the midway of the carnival of dreams is, and isn't, like life itself, the outer and inner carnivals are filled to the brim with choices, as light and fluffy, as powerful and scary, as dirty and deliriously desirous as you might want. The carnival of dreams is participatory in that it reflects you and what you bring with you. Like Yoda, when he tells Luke Skywalker when he, 
when Luke sees and senses darkness emanating from a nearby cave in the Empire Strikes Back, and Luke asks, What's in there? Only what you take with you, Yoda replies. And Luke brings with him fear and anger. And what does he meet? Darth Vader, the image of the Dark Father, his father, the very personification of himself when anger and fear is let loose to rule him. A secret about the mytho-poetic carnival is that it goes both ways. It's not just what you take with you in that you will find reflected. As you become experienced at thinking in these ways, you can find things in there that you can take back out with you. We all carry in us, at least in potential, the full spectrum of human nature, from the high and mighty to the poor and destitute, deep inside us, the panoply of possible human characters, artists, crooks, innocent children, and experienced adults who's got knowledge of the world in both a biblical, <laughs> biblical and an understanding kind of way. You know how in the Bible when they say that someone has knowledge of a woman, it means you have been involved in the deepest and most passionate form of participatory knowing, intercourse or making love. Inside us, all the characters and aspects of humanity are lined up in a great horseshoe, a U-shaped formation, or maybe as a large oval, which is the shape of the real-world carnival, and also the shape then, I guess, of the mythopoetic carnival. You enter one side, delve in, go deep, turn the corner at the end, and then begin the walk back towards the exit. The inhabitants of the mythopoetic midway are archetypes, and from this carnival of dreams you have a choice of which attractions to interact and possibly identify with. You narrow the infinite down into certain character traits which you can bring with you into the waking everyday life, make them part of your identity. Many of the characteristics of your identity are just there inherent in you. They bubble up from within you and you act them out. As long as this process is going on unexamined, you won't be able to do anything to guide it. Living with a more kind of examined life approach, this can allow you to discover that you can change things about yourself if you so please. You can learn and develop. Certain things can be discovered and you might find something at the carnival that catches your fancy and before you know it, a whole new facet and side to yourself is revealed to you. If the interest is genuine and the love is there, you can take that with you to your real life and your real world character. As we're all going through a constantly developing individuation. We are, whether we are aware of it or not, involved in a constant creation and maintenance of ourselves. Emotions and thoughts and inclinations arise in us. But as anyone who has spent any time in meditation has experienced and can concur with, the constant and uncontrollable arising of thoughts when you're trying to do even the simplest of tasks, such as 
paying close attention to your breath makes it easy to understand that we are not our thoughts. When I'm trying to meditate, I'm just thoughts just come up like it's uh, like they were paid. <laughs> They're just like like ads popping into your head. It's a, a very interesting thing to behold because thoughts are parts of us. They're a very important part of us, but they're not everything. They are not us. Emotions arise as a response to a situation or thoughts. Uh, my, my daughter needs to be reminded to eat for every single bite of her breakfast piece of bread because she constantly gets lost in her Donald Duck comics. And this is, of course, exactly what I did when I was her age. But in this constant repetition of the same things, emotions arise in me and I say and I behave in ways that I'm not proud of. Irritation, annoyance and anger arises. Spending time in meditation, exploring how feelings and emotions arise is something that happens in me. They arise, but they do not need to define me. I am not my emotions, or I am at least more than my emotions. In a meditation I become aware of feelings without identifying with them. And the idea is then that you take this with you into your everyday life. But when I'm asking for the 14th time, my daughter to take another bite, that is surprisingly hard. But it has happened. It's happening. There are times when I've shortened my feeling of irritation or anger from, you know, sometimes that can just grab you and hold you and you hold on to it for like 10 minutes or you, there's no point in it. And then when I have grabbed these things, I can get it down to it just, it's not much more than that it appears. And then me recognizing that it appears and in this recognition, its power of me is lost, crisis averted. Like in the movie Labyrinth, when Sarah realizes that all she has to do to break the Goblin King's hold of her and her baby brother is to intone the words, you have no power over me. You have no power over me. We're all characters in the world. As a showman, I play a character when I am on stage, but I am also playing the role and character of father an actor prepares for his role, a showman prepares for his show, but do we as show folk pay enough attention to the character or characters we play in the real world? Do we prepare that enough? If you don't prepare for that role, the result is probably the same as with an under-rehearsed and underdeveloped character in a show. It's sloppy, and in a sense it can be disrespectful to your fellow players and the crowd as well. So, there is a definitive back and forth, an exchange is possible between the inner midway and the outer world. So, let's um, look a little closer, when we've done this a little bit before, but we'll look a little closer at uh, some of Carl Jung's ideas to make some stronger links between death psychology and our mental midway project. Let's look at carnival and archetypes. Carl Jung first described his idea of the collective unconscious in an essay from 1916 called The Structure of the Unconscious. 
He makes a distinction between the personal Freudian unconscious, filled with sexual fantasies and repressed images, and the collective unconscious, which encompasses the soul of humanity at large. The collective aspects of the unconscious came, according to Jung, from archaic remnants, ancient mental forms, whose presence can't fully be explained by anything in the individual's own life, things which seems to be innate and to be inherited shapes and structures in the human mind. Jung imagined this collective unconscious to exist beyond the chronology or time frame of a human lifespan, developing instead on an evolutionary time scale, carrying in it aspects from our deep time evolutionary history, which we've touched upon before, impulses, emotions, and desires, which are not just part of us now as individuals or even as humans, but going in a sort of backward direction, we carry with us things from ourselves, from Homo sapiens, back through Homo erectus, Homo habilis, Australopithecus afarensis, and maybe some of us, the most intrepid psychonauts and most aware of show folk and explorers of mental and mythical undergrounds, can channel fragments from the mental structures of the very first scuttling mammals that crawled out from their holes into the post-apocalyptic landscape of that uh, was left after the asteroid killed the dinosaurs. The collective unconscious is the structures and shapes that can be found in us as part of a branching unfolding of life. For what are we but a wave of life splashing through and unfolding in time and space? on an unimaginably slow timescale. It's not me, Frodo, that's unfolding in this time frame. I'm but a particle or a single cell in the wave of life. The wave moves forward and morphs through the cycles of birth and death, me being born from my parents and my daughter being born from my wife and I. This is just a tiny little rice in the change of the momentum of the unfolding shapes of time. This is it's like trying to make, paint a picture of life as a process. It um, can be complicated, but anyway, some of what has shaped us in the deep time history must exist in us in the way that we are made, in our wetware, in the shape of our bodies, by sexual and natural and artificial selection. And I find that big parts of Jung's proposed collective unconscious maps really neatly on top of this mythopoetic carnival that we've talked about as an inner human space, a world ripe for mythopoetic creation. And this leads us into the archetypes, or as I think of them, the inhabitants of uh, the collective unconscious. And to start, that I found this quote by Jung where he says the archetypes evidently live and function in the deeper layers of the unconscious especially in that phylogenetic substratum which I have called the collective unconscious uh, phylogenetic that just means that it's about the development of a whole species or a group of organisms or as opposed to an individual, about human beings, not about 
me, Captain Frodo, as a person. This localization, this is Jung again, this localization in species development explains a good deal of their strangeness, uh, the archetypes' strangeness. They bring into our ephemeral consciousness an unknown psychic life belonging to a remote past. It is the mind of our unknown ancestors, their way of thinking and feeling, their way of experiencing life and the world, gods and men. Just as the human body is a museum, so to speak, of its species history, so too is the human psyche. He wrote that in a book called Conscious, Unconscious and Individuation in, from 1939. But how about that image, that last bit there, of uh, just as the human body is a museum, so to speak, of its species, so too is the human psyche. The collective unconscious is a museum of the human psyche, like the human body is a museum to our body's development and relations to the past. I love that. Now, our mythic carnival is inhabited by characters like the by, by characters like the fool, the magician, the snake or beast charmer, and the fortune teller. And the space of Carl Jung's collective unconscious is also then inhabited, as I call it. He calls these inhabitants of his collective unconscious archetypes. But to clarify, for Jung, these are not just inhabitants of the collective unconscious. They are sort of part of the fabric of it, not just beings within a space, but a part of the whole. That said, Jung does describe the archetypes as distinct and different. When we look at them, we, of course, find them strangely familiar. That's the point of them. Broad characters and concepts that we find in the world. And whether this exists in us already, and through this we recognize them in the world, or whether it's such fundamental features of the world that it has gotten assimilated into us is a complex question. But I'm guessing the answer, as would so much, lies somewhere along the midway. Little for column A, little for column B. What are the archetypes? There's quite a few among them, the innocent, the everyman, the hero, the outlaw, the explorer, the creator, the ruler, the magician, the lover, the caregiver, the sage, and uh, jester. This reads to me like a list of attractions found one after the other along the mythopoetic carnival. The innocent is akin to the fool, the everyman is akin to the crowd, the lovers are the teenagers sneaking their first French kisses behind a popsicle stand, and the magician is... Yeah, you get the point. I see a story forming just by overlaying these two concepts of the mythopoetic carnival and the collective unconscious with characters or inhabitants in the world, narrative and story practically mushrooms out of it. If you just list some archetypal characters, just three, hero, lover, monster, then you have a rudimentary story just by those three archetypes being posed, one, two, three after the other, all sorts of possibilities um, appear. Like the innocent that belongs to every man decides to pay his $16 to the guardian of the threshold of the mythopoetic carnival and begins his journey along the midway. Story just 
you know, unfolds. And I think I could easily imagine carnival attractions or places for the lot of the archetypes, like the explorer, back from the vestiges of the civilized world with strange occult artifacts, the outlaw wrestler who will take on any carnival patron, every man who dare face him. And I take it the lover, the jester, and the creator could all easily become attractions in your own fertile imagination. A real-world carnival is easy to visit. With the carnival of dreams, not so much. Is there a participatory way to access the mythopoetic carnival? Are there any ways or tools to aid us in our explorations? Since we can't physically walk into it, how can we meet it with our minds and enter into it in a participatory process? I mean, just thinking about it, and that is, is one aspect, but is there something more? And as a carny, my mind falls upon one of the tools of the fortune teller, the most mystical and mysterious amongst the decks of cards, the tarot. I ask myself, why is it that as you enter the carnival, you practically meet the entire cast of characters from the tarot deck, at least the part of it that's called the major arcana? A standard tarot deck is 78 cards. The cards are divided into two categories, the minor and the major arcana. The 56 cards of the minor arcana correspond largely to a normal deck of cards, as we shall look at in a bit. And the other 22 cards, the major arcana, is often considered to be the core or foundation of the deck. I also think of it a little bit, maybe like the soul of it. That's just something I've made up, but that's how I think about it. It's made up of symbols of archetypal significance, and here it comes again, the fool, the magician, the hierophant, the lovers, the wheel of fortune, the hanged man, death, and the world, just to name a few. And some say these cards follow a kind of storyline that tells of the spiritual travels taken from the Innocent Wonder of the Fool, which is one of the early cards of the Major Arcana, it's the first card, to the oneness and ful fulfillment of the, the world, which is the last of the Major Arcana. As we shall see, the cards can be understood as telling a story of our psychological or spiritual evolution into enlightenment and individuation, so it's pretty big stuff and pretty resonant to our mythic carnival project, I think. A deck of cards is also very much a staple part of the carnival with games of chance and gambling. And our earliest knowledge about the existence of cards are from prohibitions against the use of them. Somewhere in the late 1300s, 60s, 70s, 1360, 1370, cards were widespread enough to be banned in many countries. And it's interesting that it's through these bans or attempts to eradicate them that we get our very first definitive sources of its existence. So the tarot is very similar to what we think of as a normal deck of cards. The major overlap is with the minor arcana, and the differences between them are not so big. The suits have morphed. In the tarot, there are wands or batons or sticks or something like that, and it's also cups, swords, and pentacles or coins, but the principle is, sa is the same with four suits. 
and the minor arcana has 56 cards whilst a normal deck has 52. Each minor arcana card is in a suit as we said and it's numbered one or ace to ten and then there's the court cards from the regular deck we know them as jack queen and king and the modern jack reflects the knight but in the minor arcana of the tarot the knight has someone that follows with him he has a page like most knights had and a page was a boy that was in training for knighthood in the personal service of a knight so when the knight lost his page the deck of cards we know and love in our magic in our games lost four cards and became 52. The other major difference is the entire major arcana. The most potent symbols of the soul of the tarot deck. The possible evolutionary narrative of human beings journeying from fools into a full participatory knowing of the world, that's gone. The modern deck of cards is kind of like most modern entertainment. A little shallow compared to the tarot's full original potential. Something we'll have to get back to later and something I'm working on in my book trying to explore that where does where does the showmanship come from but for now I'll leave you with this idea that the soul is what's lacking in a normal deck this is a shallow interpretation perhaps for any ardent scholar in mysticism but and in in tarot but something rings true about it to me all the other cards are so neatly ordered purpose driven one after the other all the symbols are more diffuse and difficult to grasp. The participatory mode, the way that you interact with a card, what it tells you and asks of you when you look at a card in the tarot like the High Priestess, is very different from what's required of you when you look at the Six of Clubs. But in a regular deck of cards, there is one card that somehow tricked its way back in after being banished. In a quiz I saw the other day, one of the questions was, which was the last card to be added to the deck of cards? I thought this was kind of funny and, and self-evident. It's not like you're going to think it was the three of clubs or the queen of hearts. Each of the 52 cards are in a strict sequential order, although there is something peculiar about the ace being both number one and number 14. But anyway, to me, this kind of mirrors how the first card in the tarot, the card zero, which is called the fool, signifies the beginning and the end. Zero is, is a really strange number. It's also a late number to be added in. The Greeks didn't have zero. <clears throat> if you add it in front of any of the other numbers, it doesn't really change its numerical value. One and oh one is the same number. And this is the innocent fool. If you add zero behind any of the numbers, we get a big numerical difference. One becomes 10, seven becomes 70, and so forth. The Fool is a dual card, innocence and experience. And maybe by placing it after the other card, you get this experience thing, and it enriches this card before it. Anyway, I don't really know anything about tarot. I'm just making this up. But like the Ace, it's... Um, it's also the beginning and the end of a cycle. And this, again, makes me think of the T.S. Eliot poem, Four Quarts, Four Quartets. And uh, this is a little piece from that. 
we shall not cease from exploration, and the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started. We shall not cease from exploration, and the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know that place for the first time, and know the place for the first time, through the unknown remembered gate, when the last of earth left to discover is that which was the beginning. At the source of the longest river, the voice of the hidden waterfall and the children in the apple tree, not known because not looked for, not known because not looked for, but heard, half heard, in the stillness between two waves of the sea. Particularly that this beginning here of we shall not cease from exploration and the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. That's the beginning and the end and this endless cycling that is an interesting idea. Anyway, the question was, which was the last card added to the deck of cards? And of course, it was the Joker, which was not added to printed decks of cards until the 1860s. The Joker is the only card that can be added in, which is not part of the natural cycles of the four suits, heart, diamond, clubs and spades. Each of those suits is complete from ace to two to three and all the way up to the king. Each card follows perfectly on the previous, always one up in value. And the joker is the one who doesn't fit in, but also the one that can fit in anywhere, the one that can be everything. The one card that can get scribbled on with the pen, three of hearts or nine of diamond, and magically fill the gap in the sequence. If one of the cards has gotten lost, the Joker steps in, steps right up, unformed, ready to put on any costume, take any guise, and once he has been given a new role, he takes it on completely. He gets the abilities and the powers of the one he mimics. The Joker is nothing, yet he is or can become anything. The only truly transcendent card in the regular deck of cards a better symbolic representation for the showman can hardly be made. Further, I would say that the Joker is a picture of, can be seen as a picture of humans, of human beings, a representation of mankind's relation to the natural order. All of existence, each species, is shaped by evolution pretty much into one thing. They're extremely specialized. They've become the fastest runner, the best digger, or the highest grazer. The leopard has slowly, over evolutionary time, become a running machine. Every part of its anatomy is part of making it the fastest running being. The mole's front paws could not be made worse for running if a human tried to design it. Although they share an almost identical number of bones in their front paws, one set of paws is for running, the other is for digging. When it comes to digging, the mole's paws are excellent, and they're excellent for digging, and they bear an uncanny resemblance to shovels. The giraffe can reach the leaves that are out of reach for everyone else, 
it has literally taken grazing to the next level. Animals are one thing, each like a card in the deck. Human beings, like the Joker, is not assigned one particular place or role. They can, and they can and must be many things. Our arms and hands are not shaped for anything in particular. In fact, what makes them special is their lack of specialization. And their specialization is their open-endedness. The adaptions that made us excellent climbers in our primate past have been slightly altered towards generalist use. You could say that the exact things that has disappeared was the very things that made us adapted to any one thing. As a tendency, I'd say that our species have been supremely well adapted to nothing in particular, which also means to anything, who is not assigned a role from the start, that which comes unformed. That's us. Not that which comes, but us that comes unformed. As Jean-Paul Sartre says, man is condemned to be free because once thrown into the world, he is responsible for everything that he does. We're um, the joker who can be anything or anyone with some modifications. With a shovel, we can dig like a mole. With a bicycle or a motorbike, we can speed like the leopard. And with stilts or stepladders, we can reach the out-of-reach fruits. Maybe this need for modification of our non-specialized body through tools is found reflected in the Joker card in how we have to write on the Joker with a pen uh, which card it represents if we've lost the seven of diamonds or whatever. And getting back on the archetypal train and its link with the tarot, which is where this is going, Carl Jung was more aware of these links than what I think is commonly known. On the 1st of March, 1933, Carl Jung spoke about the tarot during a seminar he was conducting. And this is a transcript of his actual spoken words. This ties the tarot to the archetypes, which for us is a tie to the Mythic Carnival project. And he said, Another strange field of occult experience in which the hermaphrodite appears is the tarot. That is a set of playing cards, such as were originally used by the gypsies. There are Spanish specimens, if I remember rightly, as old as the 15th century. These cards are really the origin of our pack of cards, in which the red and black symbolizes the opposites. The division of four clubs, spades, diamonds and hearts also belongs to the individuation symbolism. They are psychological images, symbols with which one plays as the unconscious seems to play with its contents. They combine in certain ways, and the different combinations respond to the playful development of events in the history of mankind. The original cards of the tarot consists of the ordinary cards, the king and the queen and the knight and the ace, etc. Only the figures are somewhat different. And besides, there are 21 cards upon which are symbols or pictures of symbolic situations. For example, the symbol of the sun, the symbol of the man hung up by the feet, or the tower struck by lightning, or the wheel of fortune, and so on. Those are sort of archetypal ideas of a differentiated nature.
which mingle with the ordinary constituents of the flow of the unconscious, and therefore it is applicable for an intuitive method that has the purpose of understanding the flow of life, possibly even predicting the future events. Well, I don't know about that. At all events, lending itself to the reading of the conditions of the present moment. moment. It is in that way that it is analogous to the I Ching, the Chinese divination method that allows you at least a reading of the present condition. You see, man always felt the need of finding an access through the unconscious to the meaning of all actual condition because there is a sort of correspondence or a likeness between the prevailing condition and the condition of the collective unconscious. Now, as slipped out, I don't really believe that tarot has any supernatural powers to predict the future, not beyond what revelations it can give about the present or the past that might illuminate the choices and decisions you take as you move on into the future. And I found this was backed up by Alexandro Jodorowsky, which is a visionary filmmaker and tarot practitioner who made such incredibly bizarre and fascinating movies as Holy Mountain and El Topo and Santa Sangra, which is uh, just an incredible circus film. Anyway, his work we're going to have to talk about in the future. Uh, but he says about the tarot, you must not talk about the future. The future is a con. The tarot is a language that talks about the present. If you use it to see the future, you become a con man. So there you have it. So how do we now, like what links this participatory thing that is such a big part of being part of a real world carnival or just being part of real world life? And how do we then link the, this to the tarot? Why am I talking about the tarot? And how does this then, can this be used as a tool to enter this mental midway of ours? I think we can beneficially use the tarot as a tool to enter the mythopoetic carnival. Take a deck of tarot cards, shuffle it, then lay some of them, maybe seven, before you in a U-shape, the shape of a midway. And you have in the cards now a mythopoetic carnival that you can visit. Like uh, any random carnival that's just appeared and arrived on the field outside of your town or whatever, if you live in a big city, who knows? Anyway, that is going, I'm going to leave that up to you <laughs> to uh, decide the details of that. But the attractions along the way which you that you see before you, you can then choose to interact with. You can step up and check it out, and if it speaks to you, here you can do the voice of the outside man at the front door of the attraction and just see what comes out, or any other way of exploration that you might think of. If the... If that attraction of the card seems relevant to you, you can delve into it, you can pay the price, which I guess this is your time and attention that you put into it, and then you can see what you learn. If it inspires you, then that's all that we can ask for. If you have a question, you should have a question. If there's something on your mind, formulate it before you lay the cards. It doesn't have to be related to the normal things that people want to know from visiting a fortune teller, which broadly falls into three categories of love, money, and health. 
It's as simple as that. You, but you can use it also like a tool to stimulate your creativity. Use its life-imitating, internal conversation-stimulating powers to chat with yourself as you reflect on the attractions you see along the cards laid out into a tabletop midway. You might find it a valuable exploration of ideas for your next poem, for your new act, or for the structure of any project that you're working on. And a deck of cards like the tarot, I have some very nice ones, um, some circus-inspired ones that are really great, and I find that it's a bit daunting to get my head around the entire 78 cards, but I do find that um, the Major Arcana just with the, all those pictures on them and that it speaks to you really quite clearly sometimes. In this way, we, by laying them out and all that, we get the randomness of a real-world carnival laid out before us. Since we all, in one way or the other, are showmen, show folk, we could also probably get interesting ideas from attempting to lay out your dream carnival in a deliberate way by choosing each attraction. What would that carnival look like? Use the cards to tell the story of your project. Then throw other cards at it. Flip out a couple of random cards and contrast them. What? See what you learn? I mean, this has the, Jung talks about this. Every uh, one of the archetypes kind of has a shadow, and you can always look at what is the opposite of this, and where does this go? Interesting stuff. And by visiting the mythopoetic midway of cards, it can make your process of interaction with it at least a little more participatory. In the process, you will become aware of the present, yourself, and the world, and your interactions with it in different ways. It can make you aware of things and thoughts and situations you might not have immediately considered. You might discover potential connections in your work or external factors that reflect or connect to your work. You can find new ideas, unorthodox links triggered in you. Creativity comes from metaphor. It comes from overlaying two or more things on top of each other and by combining seemingly unrelated, separate things new things will emerge. For me in my rackets, it's the contortion act, doing that at the same time as the slapstick act. Or, anyway, some things, if you take two wildly different things, they will fit. Others, not so much. But the process of work going into the things which at first seems to fit the least might become the source of your most creative work. Easy links are made by everyone. The harder, stranger, and more idiosyncratic links that you need to apply yourself to can become your creative discoveries and your new contributions to the world. All right. Those who have known me for a long time, like who would have thought that I would be proposing anyone getting out a tarot deck or going to visit some hippie friend and borrow one. Uh, it's uh, strange times indeed. But I find might as well just go where this uh, fascination takes me. And uh, again, as we're coming to the end, if you have anything to add, anything to comment, anything that you would like to talk to me about, send me a 
contact me on Facebook as Captain Frodo or Frodo Santini, or you can send me an email on thewayoftheshowman at gmail.com. Thanks to those who have already done that. It's excellent to read. And, you know, as always, click five stars and uh, write a review if you can. And most of all, if you could share this on, uh, share my links to my uh, podcasts on your um, feed uh, of your social media, that would be mightily helpful. And that's all that I have to say for today. So then all that's left to say is uh, take care of yourself and those you love. And I hope to see you all along the way.